Hello and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 20 of the podcast. This episode is entitled The Meteor Watcher, written by myself. Thank you all for listening. This is a story about a man, a man who built a telescopic observatory in his backyard. This wasn't just a little observatory either. This was one of those highfalutin numbers you see perched up on mountaintops and in science documentaries, the kind that look like big domes, like igloos with dirigible-sized telescopes inside. He started drafting plans for the observatory the day she left, and it took him eight months to finally finish the damn thing. And I don't mean eight months of working for a couple days and then taking a few weeks off and then working a couple days again. He didn't treat this like a hobby. This was serious work. Day in and day out, sweating in the hot sun, serious, serious labor. Nothing else mattered to the man. On the night she left, the man looked up to the stars, and since that night, he hadn't been able to look away. Something was wrong up there in the cosmos, he reckoned. A big, mean space rock could be sputtering its way to Earth, and he wouldn't know about it until the authorities released the info. That is, if he could even trust them to do so. There was only one way to know for sure. The man had about an acre of land in his fenceless backyard, mostly filled with underbrush and rocky soil. It wasn't a lot, but it would be enough to fit a sizable NASA-esque observatory. The area surrounding his property was unpopulated, flat farmland, the kind of place tornadoes loved. No one would be bothered by his project, and the lack of people meant that at night, the stars were so plentiful, they looked less like an atomized bunch of glowing particles, and more like a single glittering mist. He started construction by clearing out a big ring of foliage and digging a shallow foundation. The soil was dry and hard and filled with little spiky metamorphic rocks. It took him two weeks just to dig a six-inch deep circular hole in the ground. While digging, the man unearthed a lot of weird crap, including the remains of two dogs and a cat. These had been the pets, he guessed, of the home's previous owners. He tossed their brownish bones into the dirt pile. There was no time to rebury long-dead animals. When finished, the diameter of the foundation was about 50 feet. Pretty good. Nothing like the big leagues, but definitely large enough to fit some kind of real-deal piece of telescopic tech. The next step was pouring the foundation. The man rented a little orange cement mixer from his local hardware store and lugged 60-pound bags of dry cement from his garage to the construction site. A tenth of a mile stretch that grew longer with each trip. This was where the labor really began. Never having mixed cement, the man struggled to find the proper consistency for the pour. It was like mixing pancake batter, only this batter was permanent and meant to support an important structure. Soggy pancakes weren't the worst-case scenario here. The cement couldn't be a mess of watery soup, formless and unable to solidify. It needed to have that perfect, chocolate-malt-like consistency. In the end, the man made just about all the mistakes possible when pouring cement. The foundation came out uneven, lumpy, and already cracking around the edges. It was a big gray disc that bulged and dipped. On rainy days, certain spots even collected some standing water, big, dirty puddles that the man had to clear out with a pail. 
He was unsure what kind of material the big observatories were made out of. A cursory Google search didn't really reveal their structural makeup. Was it reinforced concrete? Some kind of lightweight polymer or high-tech space-age metal? Either way, it didn't matter much. He didn't have the money needed for any of those things. Not letting himself become stumped in such an early age of the process, the man went forward with construction using basic two-by-fours salvaged from a condemned church nearby. He apologized to God each time he stepped out of the church, his arms full of cannibalized lumber. There wasn't enough wood to frame a perfectly cylindrical base. Besides, the man didn't have the carpentry skills necessary to make a circular structure out of lumber. Instead, he framed the walls into a kind of ugly decagon, a circle's jagged, less elegant brother. The cement foundation creeped out beneath the wooden walls where their polygonal angles couldn't match its non-linear edge. Corrugated steel came next. Using a box of recycled nails and about 50 sheets of rippled steel taken from a junkyard, the man walled up the framing of the observatory. No insulation, no sheetrock, just brittle, half-rusted steel taken from a garbage heap. He took an angle grinder to one of the ten sides of the observatory and etched out a six-foot-tall rectangle in the thin metal. This was the entrance. Steel-walled and ten-sided, the construction project was really starting to look like something. It was missing a roof, sure, but it was kind of reminiscent of a military barrack or bomb shelter. It looked bad, but it definitely looked like something. This wasn't just a crumbling old outhouse or rusty storage shed. This was a serious structure. Anyone driving by the man's house could see that something big was happening in his backyard. Something pretty ambitious for the little town of 1,500 people. One guy in particular, a perfect stranger to the man, started walking by the man's property almost daily. He'd stop on the edge of the man's property, take a good look at the construction project, nod to the man, and then be off again. Sometimes he'd linger for nearly an hour, sometimes he wouldn't really stop at all, but this daily occurrence became a part of the man's routine, a little moment that he looked forward to every day. With the foundation poured and the walls framed and built, there were really only a couple things left in the construction process. A roof needed to be built, and a telescope needed to be installed, two tasks that seemed pretty much impossible. The man knew that any great observatory had to have a dome-like roof. It had to be a rotundous thing, round and phallic like the center of a basilica. This was a non-negotiable, crucial feature, like a weather vane on top of a barn house. Without a domed roof, you could hardly call it an observatory. The man didn't know how to proceed. He wasn't an engineer or even a craftsman. He was an accountant and had very little constructional know-how. During this period of setback, the man walked out to his roofless structure at night, lied down on the uneven cement flooring, stared up at the stars, and wondered the same terrifying thing he had since the moment she left. Is there a meteor coming? Without a powerful telescope, it would be impossible to know. A Texas-sized meteor could be rocketing through the solar system, its trajectory perfectly in line to obliterate the entire Eurasian subcontinent, and without a good telescope, the man would be totally ignorant. This thought kept him up at night, kept him up every night. Since she left, it was the only thing he could think about. The man would lie in bed and stare at the ceiling and imagine a fiery rock the size of continental Europe crashing into the ocean, boiling the water, and ending the world. 
It could happen at any moment. It could happen right now. Or now. Or maybe right now. Or now. Or maybe 10 seconds from now. The man couldn't trust the science community or the government to alert the people. A disaster of this magnitude would be kept hidden from the public. No one would know what was happening until the sky turned white and the shockwave toppled homes from Montana to Singapore. At some moments, especially when the man was idle, he thought he could hear the meteor, or even smell burnt ozone as it vaporized all the moisture in the atmosphere. He couldn't continue to live like this. He was burdened with a terrible, constant feeling of dread. It was like that fear that washes over you when riding in an airplane, and you suddenly become acutely aware that you are in a metal tube, flying through the skies 32,000 feet above the ground at 500 miles an hour, and the only thing between you and cloudy nothingness is the thin hull of the aircraft. Except in this scenario, the man was acutely aware of the fact that he was a microscopic organism on a rocky ball, which was spinning like a top and hurtling through space at unfathomable speeds, dive-bombing through the cosmos and ready to collide with whatever space junk just happened to be floating around out there. This hyper-awareness, this worry, was slowly killing the man. His adrenal glands were pumping at full speed, and his fight-or-flight system was constantly engaged. His brain felt trapped in a pressure cooker, all hot and dense, and his stomach felt inundated with battery acid. His anxiety was a corrosive material, slowly eroding and smoothing out the wrinkles in his brain. Before long, his nervous condition would dissolve his brain entirely, rendering him nothing more than a vegetable with a vacant cavity in his skull. Once the observatory was finished, that awful state of anticipation would be over and he'd be released from his torment. He'd be able to experience that pleasurable sensation of knowing instead of guessing and worrying. Finally, he'd know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was safe. And if he wasn't safe, if there was a meteor screaming towards Earth ready to decimate the population of the world, the man would finally call her and tell her everything he needed to before they were all incinerated in an apocalyptic fireworks show. It would be appropriate to call her then, what with the doom of mankind zooming towards Earth, under those circumstances, who could blame him? It's always appropriate to tell people you love them in times of horrible calamity, no matter what kind of bad terms you're on. Even if they did leave you for someone they said was more exciting and less serious. After days of contemplating the dome problem, the man finally fell on a solution. Using a bunch of those flexible, bendy poles made for camping tents, the man would run a series of arches across the observatory and then drape some of those heavy-duty, military-grade tarps over the tent pole skeleton, thereby creating a kind of fabric dome. It wouldn't be very sturdy or pretty or even very dome-like, but it was the best idea the man had, and it was very cost-effective. Some illegible plans were drawn up and the man went to work. An army surplus store provided him with all the tarps and tent poles he could dream of, and whatever tarps or rope or poles it lacked, he could simply grab from his tornado shelter in his basement. He had all kinds of emergency supplies in there. Food, gas generators, satellite phones, the works. He stretched the poles across the observatory in a long, bulging X-shape, and then attached them to the walls of the observatory by way of epoxy and JB weld. With the frame completed, 
The man then overlaid a series of tarps on top and fastened them down tight, making the rough fiberglass material look flush and smooth. They didn't wrinkle or sag. In fact, they were brought so tight against the tent poles that they almost did resemble one of those glossy space-age domes of a real observatory. Lastly, he cut a long slit down the center of the tarped roof, making an aperture the telescope could peer out of. Now the thing really looked like a specific something. Now people driving by would not only notice the structure, but try to guess at its purpose. It looked so much like something familiar that it was like seeing a common word in a foreign language. Its shape and form existed somewhere in the community's subconscious, but its exact meaning was unknown. The stranger continued to come by and watch the man at work. He never spoke, never asked the man what he was building. He would simply stand and peer into the man's backyard and fold his arms and nod and then walk away. Sometimes the man would wave to the stranger, and sometimes the stranger would wave back. But that was a very rare and intimate interaction. Once the dome was completed, the man started on the painting process. This was one of the most important pieces of the puzzle. It wasn't just an aesthetic touch, but something that would transform the hodgepodge collection of blue and green tarps and rusted steel into a single, cohesive structure. It had to be white. Dazzling, blinding, perfect, virginal white. White was the color of sci-fi and solid rocket boosters. It was the color of scientists' lab coats and of almost all great observatories. It would be one of the most gratifying steps in the whole process, the painting. Not only would it lend some kind of scientific credibility to the rinky-dink shack, but metamorphize it into something worthy of having a telescope perched within it. Again patronizing his local hardware store, the man bought as much glossy white paint as the store would allow. He filled three shopping carts full of the cans and slung a couple of those long paint rollers over his shoulders. He was going in deep. The paint had to be thick and even and so bright that no one would be able to recognize the paint job as amateur. There had to be that professional, industrial sheen, free from all inconsistency and blemish. The primer didn't bond to the tarps too well. The silvery liquid slid off the tarps like rainwater, rolling over the roof and down the steel sides of the observatory. Pools of the stuff started to accumulate on the foliage surrounding the shelter. The tarps had been advertised as water repellent, but this seemed like some next-level chemical type aversion to the paint primer. It took the man three or four passes with the stuff to get it to finally stick in a sufficient way. Priming the steel, however, was a much simpler process. It weaseled itself into the rough texturing of the rusty metal happily, bonding to the dry material with a kind of hungry lust. Even with only the drab, gunmetal gray primer coating the observatory, the thing looked new and uniform and purposeful. Things were coming together. Within a day, the primer was completely dry and practically begging to be bathed in some wet paint. But the man was slow in his application of the pearly white outer layer. This was his Sistine Chapel, his Mona Lisa. He worked in long, methodical strokes along the base of the observatory slowly working his way up. There was no urgency here, only the therapeutic repetition of rolling the paint back and forth, back and forth. The thing came out white and wonderful. Every square inch of the shack got a couple layers of the glossy stuff. The thing was so brilliant and glowing, 
that on sunny days the man had to avert his eyes. It was now radiant and reflective and resembled those medical triage tents used in old wars. By the man's estimation, the observatory was just about ready for its final and most important piece, the telescope. At this point, the thing started to become something of a roadside attraction. As they drove by, people would catch a glimpse of the glittering structure and put on their brakes and nudge their spouses and shake their heads in bewilderment. There could be no doubting it at this point. That white dome thingy was definitely being used for something special. But what was it? A wedding venue? A bizarre greenhouse? A fancy utility shed? An end-of-the-world bunker, perhaps? On a couple of occasions, the man got visitors knocking at his front door. They wanted to know what that thing was in his backyard. The man would, in a kind of excited, childlike way, offer them a tour of the structure. But the visitors would decline and simply say, We're just so curious. We, we just want to know what purpose it serves. And the man would casually tell them it was a telescopic observatory. And the visitors would laugh and wait for an addendum to this humorous statement. But no addendum would come, and then they would walk away dissatisfied, looking over their shoulders at the hulking white blob sitting in the man's backyard. Rumors began to grow. And as the man began working on plans to install the telescope, small crowds formed on the edges of his property, crowds full of whispers and scoffs. The stranger still came by the man's house, but now a little less often. He had to weave through crowds of people to get a good glimpse of the project, and was often ridiculed by others for budding. Sometimes the man would identify the stranger in the group of spectators and give him a nod. Sometimes the stranger would nod back. But eventually, possibly because the crowds grew too large and dense for his liking, the stranger stopped coming by the man's house entirely. This saddened the man who still looked out into the huddles of onlookers every day, trying to single out the old stranger's face. He missed his friend. Installing slash constructing the telescope would easily be the hardest part of the process. It couldn't just be a little store-bought number. It had to be one of those bulbous monstrosities you see at planetariums and on Boy Scout trips. Computers and gimbals and gearboxes and all kinds of little motorized devices would have to be integrated in its design. The man imagined typing coordinates into a small computer keyboard and watching as his telescope whirred and clanged and rotated and aimed its hyper-powerful lens at the exact coordinates he had inputted. This kind of telescope wouldn't be something the man could just whip up for himself, nor would it be something he could just order on Amazon Prime. The fat, artillery-piece-looking telescopes that hung in real observatories were mainly afforded to reputable scientific organizations and were subsidized by governments or wealthy corporations who had some stake in the observatory's success. The man wasn't really on the radar of any scientific or astronomical organization, and he wasn't confident in the government's willingness to subsidize his telescope, seeing as he had about zero knowledge in the field of astronomy. He was going to have to get creative. Settling on a little prosumer model telescope, something any layman could buy from a high-end hobbyist website, wasn't an option. The man wasn't a hobbyist. Building this observatory wasn't a hobby. It was life and death. Exhausting all of his options, he started tracing some less-than-legitimate threads on the internet, ending up in a very dark corner of the World Wide Web. 
The digital ecosystem he fell into was secretive and clandestine, a super sketchy arena wherein most anything could be purchased as long as you coughed up the right amount of cheddar. While wildly uncomfortable in this strange landscape, a place where the man ran a risk of being hacked or stalked or entangled in some kind of illicit activity, the man wasn't going to abandon his quest until he got a lead on how or where he could find some sort of astronomical telescopic device. While wandering the back alleys of the internet, the man happened to bump shoulders with a representative for a very powerful Russian oligarch, someone who, amongst other things which I cannot mention here, was trying to sell an old Soviet telescope he had bought for his six-year-old niece. The niece didn't really think the 2,000-pound telescope was all that exciting, and it was now gathering dust in one of the oligarch's many warehouses. The man initiated a correspondence with the Russian representative and acquired photos of the telescope in question. It looked just right. It was huge, about the size of an old artillery battery. And all kinds of weird hardware jutted from its body. Long metal beams and sockets and other appendages sprung out from its core and ran the length of the telescope. It was no doubt meant to be attached to some kind of high-tech array. And, what's more, the telescope was operated by an old Soviet computer. The oligarch was asking for a measly 250000 US dollars for the telescope. He'd even send over a team of technicians to install the damn thing. The price, however, was non-negotiable. Without any kind of rational thought or hesitation, the man pooled all of his savings, sold all of his more valuable assets, excluding his home, and took out a second mortgage on his house. After all of this financial finagling, the man was able to wrestle up just enough cash to meet the oligarch's asking price. A week later, the telescope was deconstructed and tossed in the back of an old Russian cargo plane headed for the States. The man's retirement and emergency savings and Ford Tahoe were all gone. And now he would be drowning in monthly mortgage payments. But all the financial pain in the world couldn't minimize the relief the man would feel once his telescope was operational. It was the only thing that mattered. Money was trivial when compared to the threat of total annihilation. What would money mean in the face of a meteor? Nothing. Money wouldn't be able to save him or the woman. The only thing that could grant him some peace of mind would be the telescope. Waiting for the telescope to arrive was pretty rough for the man. It was the most idle he had been since she left, since he broke ground on the whole observatory project. Thoughts of the meteor and thoughts of her, the woman who left, started crawling around in his mind and built yucky little nests in his brain, burrows that would be hard to exterminate. He needed to keep busy on something or else be overrun by those evil recursive thoughts. He decided to dress up the inside of the observatory, do a little interior design. The place was, as of then, nothing but a concrete and steel shack with a little tarped roof. It was completely empty inside. The man wanted to make it a little more homey, so he laid down some rugs in the center of the observatory and even put his wooden roll-top desk against one of the ten sides of the shack. He brought out his generator from his tornado shelter and strung up some lights. The place actually started to look pretty cool, like some kind of makeshift dwelling you'd see in a hippie commune. He bought a cot from the army surplus store and set it up next to his roll top. The man even started to sleep in his observatory. During the day, he entertained the curious people who were loitering around his property, answering questions and offering tours of his new creation. 
He rarely went back inside his actual house. Memories of the woman still haunted that place. The whole house felt irradiated, like it was contaminated with something toxic and harmful to the man's health. He only ever re-entered the house for two things, to get a refrigerated beverage and to go numero dos. The observatory was his home now. The telescope arrived in an unmarked semi-truck just before dawn. The screeching of its air brakes woke the man up in his cot. He walked out of his backyard and into his driveway where he found a handful of young guys unloading pieces of the telescope from the back of the semi. Some older Russian dude with a big mustache stood on the man's front lawn and barked orders at the younger guys in his native language. He sounded angry and impatient. By the time the sun was over the horizon, the man's front yard was littered with the parts of the piecemeal telescope. The man approached the old Russian. He seemed to be in charge of things. Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me? The man said. The old Russian turned and nodded to the man. You, uh, you ordered uh, this, yes? The old Russian asked. The man nodded. Yeah, that's right. Uh, where, uh, where do you want it? Uh, my backyard, said the man. Let me show you. The man led the old Russian to his backyard, where he pointed to his big, white circus tent of an observatory. The old Russian raised his eyebrows and shook his head. In, in there. The man nodded. Uh, well, yeah. The Russian shook his head again. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's a, uh, that's a sheet place. The man shrugged. Rolling his eyes, the old Russian walked back to the front yard and started yelling again. Moments later, the crew of young guys started trudging into the backyard, their arms full of alien-looking pieces of the telescope. Upset by the fact that they had to carry these heavy metallic pieces a tenth of a mile to the observatory, the young guys glared at the man each time they plodded past him. But the man didn't mind. The telescope had finally arrived. Nearly everyone in the town was now invested in the man's bizarre project, and a crowd big enough to rival a state fair was starting to form around his property, something akin to a tailgating crowd outside a football stadium or a mass of people waiting for a fireworks show. The man's project became something of a theater art piece, an attraction that livened the day-to-day -day monotony of these Midwesterners' lives. Cars lined the street. People sat in lawn chairs on the edges of the man's property and vendors began selling drinks and hot dogs. It was an event. Everyone wanted to know what this weird team of Russians was working on here in middle-of-nowhere USA. They were brutal but efficient, the team of Russian techs. Within a week, they had adapted and installed the Cold War-era telescope inside the man's makeshift observatory. The telescope hung off the ground in the center of the observatory by way of a support apparatus that connected to the sides of the structure. But to say that the telescope was tightly secured, or really even safe, would probably have been overconfidence, or even wishful thinking. The giant device kind of dangled in air, quivering like a glob of saliva ready to break away from someone's mouth. Really, if you stomped around in there too much, the whole thing would have probably come down on itself. But it looked powerful, and expensive, and really cool. The mysterious Russians hooked the telescope up to some old Soviet computation machine and left, leaving the man with nothing but a tattered user manual and a Russian-to-English dictionary. The user manual was thin and flimsy, something like the manual for an RC car, not a high-powered telescope. 
A rigorous uphill battle lay before the man. Not only was he going to have to learn the ways of operating a top-of-the-line looking device, he would also need to become a proficient Russian translator, deciphering the complicated Cyrillic alphabet and translating it into complicated English scientific jargon. He was facing a pair of steep learning curves. But despite all that stood in his way, despite the money spent and the time sunk and the energy dispensed into this project, the man was happy. The telescope observatory was finally complete. The crowd of onlookers, however, were getting antsy. They wanted a show. Yet weeks passed and the man hadn't done anything really worthy of spectation. During the day, he just kind of sat around and worked on translating the telescope user manual. Then at night, he'd walk inside his observatory and sit at his roll-top desk and again work on translating the user manual. The crowd wanted the Russians to come back. They wanted to see something. They wanted mystery and excitement. But the man was stuck doing some serious, yawn-inducing activity. Even the most avid fanatics of the man and his observatory were growing bored. More days passed, and the summer rains came, and the crowd dwindled, but the man was inching closer to actualizing his dream. He worked under the cover of his waterproof tarps, the rain slapping against the roof, and inputted codes into the telescope's computer. He was familiarizing himself with its processes, running it through its routines. He even picked up a rudimentary understanding of the Russian alphabet. The thing started up a couple times. While spooling to life, it clanked and screamed and shuddered like an old engine. It rotated by way of little gimbals and servos, just as the man dreamed. The prospect of seeing into the far reaches of space, an idea that had always seemed more or less fantastical to the man, was now very real and very immediate. He was going to do it. He was going to free himself from that terrible prison of unknowing. Using the crystal clear eyes of a $250,000 telescope, he was going to look into the cosmos and know whether or not ultimate destruction was imminent. Liberation was near. August came with its sweltering heat, and the initial test day arrived. On the edges of the man's property, where there had once been crowds large enough to rival a NASCAR event, there was now nothing but the silence and emptiness of farmland. The man was alone once again. Working in a kind of monastic, ceremonial way, the man started to prepare the observatory for its maiden voyage, its consummation. As the sun started to sink in the west, he went to work inputting coordinates in the telescope's computer, gently tapping each key like a pianist playing the final notes of a concerto. Once the coordinates were inputted, the man peeled open the large aperture in the roof of the observatory, letting the telescope's gray eye peer out into the heavens. The air was still, no wind, no sound of crickets. A large monitor, something bulky and utilitarian like a radar screen in a submarine, sat next to the telescope on a small stand. This monitor was the key to the celestial realm. Through its gray and hazy image, the man would see whatever the telescope saw. As of now, the monitor was dark, but in just a few moments there would be a dusty old image of the firmament flickering right before the man's eyes. The last remnants of purplish sunlight fell away to darkness as the man made the final tweaks to the telescope. Staring out of the aperture in the observatory's roof, the man smiled. The stars were starting to poke their bright pinheads out of the flat darkness, 
winking at the man. A gust of wind suddenly picked up. It rattled the steel sides of the observatory and made the tarps flap and pulse like high-flying flags. The man ignored this warning and kept working. Things were almost ready. He was so close now. Now, with the coordinates inputted, all the man had to do was push a single button and stand back as the telescope executed its directive. Then that unspeakable pain would be washed away. His time in Gethsemane would be over. There would be a relief beyond anything the man could imagine. Since she left, he'd been teetering on the edge of a deep pit, nearly falling into a dark place that he'd never be able to return from. But now all of that would be washed away. The grayish monitor would give him a behind-the-scenes look at the universe, and he'd finally be free from worry. The telescope would absolve him of his heavy psychological burden. The man started to tremble with excitement. He felt his heart pulsing in his fingertips. He closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and reached for the ignition button. Then there came another gust of wind. It whipped up hard against the metal sides of the observatory. This gust was more aggressive than the last. The man flicked his eyes open to see tree limbs flying high above the aperture in the roof. The telescope started to shake in its precarious perch. The tarps were thumping and whacking and beginning to loosen themselves from their ties. The steel walls rattled and clanged. This was no ordinary wind. Fearing the worst, the man stepped out of his observatory and into the windy night, looking off into the dark horizon. His t-shirt was sucked tight against his body, and his hair was blown back against his scalp. Out in the distance, clearly silhouetted against the bright mist of stars, was a dark funnel cloud, moving fast and rippling with power. Dark tentacles of vapor whipped and snapped from its core, and even in the dark, the man could tell the thing was writhing and beginning to twist. A burst of lightning came from the massive clouds, illuminating the storm. It was even larger than the man had guessed. It was an angry wall of moisture crawling across the sky, moving straight towards the man and his precious observatory. The thunder shook the ground. Oh, shit, the man said under his breath. Shit, shit, shit. Instead of running towards his home and hunkering down in his reinforced tornado shelter, the man turned around and ran back to his observatory. The whole thing was now shrieking and vibrating from the severe wind. Rain started to smack against the tarps and fall through the roof's aperture in heavy streaks. Fat droplets bounced off the telescope itself. Hail came next, battering the pricey piece of technology with its icy stones. No, 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 no! shouted the man, desperately trying to close the aperture. The man was now soaked in rainwater, and hail bounced off his skull, stinging him like sharp airsoft BBs. Water filled the divots in the uneven cement floor. The observatory was beginning to flood, and the wind was only picking up. The telescope came uncoupled from its finely tuned installation, falling, all crooked and lopsided, against one of the steel walls. The telescope monitor started to buzz and hiss with the sound of electrical malfunction, and the man himself started to sob. He stood in the center of his observatory and watched as everything started to crumble and collapse around him. I thought you might be out here, a voice shouted from behind the man. 
The man turned and saw his old friend, the stranger, standing in the entrance to his observatory, completely waterlogged and out of breath. You need to get inside, the stranger shouted. Let's go! I can't, the man said. This is, this is everything to me. I, 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 I can't leave it. Lightning struck nearby. Both of the men felt the static in the atmosphere. Yes, you can, said the stranger, approaching the man. You can or you'll die out here. I guess, I, I guess I'll have to die out here then, said the man. The stranger lost his patience. Come on, he barked, grabbing the frenzied man under his armpits. We're going. The stranger pulled the man, kicking and screaming, out of the observatory and dragged him through the mud and the rain across the tenth of a mile stretch to the man's house. He threw the man, who was now blubbering like a child, inside the house and closed the door behind them. Where's your basement? The stranger asked, his face dripping with rainwater. I have to, I have to get back out there, the man said, trying to get up and move past the stranger. Uh-uh, we're getting to your basement now. Suddenly, there was a terrible, high-pitched shrieking sound, something like a child's scream. The man's house began to creak and shudder, and some things in the home began to topple. The tornado was upon them. Through the front windows of the man's house, the two men could see the twister spinning in the dark, pirouetting its way through flat farmland and barreling straight towards the man's home. The men were silent. Seeing the power of the storm up close, the man snapped out of his delusion and led the stranger to the tornado shelter in his basement. The men huddled their water-soaked bodies in a corner of the cement chamber and waited for the storm to pass. For the past eight months, the man had been preparing for the wrong calamity. A terrible disaster was right upon him, and he hadn't been ready for it. All he could think about as his house quaked under the force of 250-mile-an-hour winds, was the woman. He needed to see if she was okay, and needed to tell her everything before he was killed by a tornado. It was always okay to tell people you love them in times of horrible calamity. The man reached into his damp pants pocket and pulled out his cell phone, which was all slippery and wet. What are you doing? asked the stranger. The man didn't reply, only fiddled with his phone and held it up above his head, praying that the storm hadn't knocked over all the nearby cell towers. The wind, even while in the tornado shelter, was nearly deafening. As the man searched for a cell signal, he heard the sound of his windows buckling and shattering upstairs, their tempered glass skittering across his hardwood floors. Other objects were thumping against the floor up there, heavy and hard, even the reinforced door to the basement seemed to be bouncing on its hinges. If ever there were a time to call her, it was now. The stranger watched as the man dialed a number on his cell phone and put it up against his ear. The man was silent for a moment, his eyes wide and his hands shaking, and then he began to speak. His voice was loud and mucousy, and he was half crying and half screaming. The stranger listened as the man told whoever was on the other line that he loved them and missed them every second of every day and that he would do anything to make them happy and that he was so, so sorry and wanted to make it up to them in any way he could. Then he told them that if he were to die, he wanted to leave everything to them, including his stamp collection, which he was always so weirdly anal about. He went on and on for a few more minutes about some more specific stuff 
stuff the stranger wasn't privy to. There was talk of a fight and a brutal argument and of words he couldn't take back. And then the man apologized one more time and hung up the phone. By the time his phone conversation was over, the tornado had passed. Now there was nothing but a quiet whimpering sound where there had once been the omnipresent sound of a jumbo jet's turbine engines. The men waited for a few more minutes, just to make sure the storm had passed, and then trudged up the stairs to assess the damage done. The man's house was in pretty bad shape. Almost all of the windows had been shattered, and rainwater saturated every square inch of the place. Picture frames and knickknacks and other smaller items were nearly all obliterated, but the structure of the house itself was still intact. The observatory, however, was completely gone. The man meandered out to where the observatory had once been, plodding through the muddy tenth-of-a-mile stretch, and found nothing but an ugly gray disk of cement. Nothing else remained. The corrugated steel was all gone. The domed roof was gone, the roll-top desk was missing, the decagonal framing was absent, and the telescope itself was nowhere to be seen. The man's lovely creation had totally vanished, evaporated, poofed into thin air. The whole thing had been spirited away into the atmosphere. Not a single fragment or splinter of it remained. The man walked the circumference of the cement foundation, his feet splashing in mud and weeds, looking for any remaining evidence of his construction project. He stepped up onto the uneven cement and wandered to the center of the disk. Cocking his head up to the night sky, the man saw that it was impossibly clear now, the kind of perfect clarity that only comes after a good storm. The stars were arrayed in their glittering patterns, and the man realized he was no longer worried. He was no longer worried. The thought of an incoming meteor no longer paralyzed him with dread. He was excised of whatever compulsion made him live in fear of that bizarre threat. He felt younger, healthier, lighter. He had been able to say what he needed to say. The man smiled and put his hands in his pockets and started back towards his house. I'm sorry about your observatory. The stranger called out to him from the back porch. Don't be, the man said. It's all okay now. It'll, it'll all be okay. You were listening to The Meteor Watcher by David Chamberlain. This episode was written, produced, edited, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you again for listening.